One of the books that I've been reading recently is uh, Philip Yancey's book uh, entitled Prayer, Does It Make a Difference? And uh, reading through his book, it's acted a little bit as a catalyst for me in my thinking uh, about prayer. And uh, in this book, Yancey shares a number of letters that he's received on the subject of prayer from uh, a number of people, his, uh, his readership uh, of other books that he's written, and uh, they've written into him on this subject of prayer. And one of those letters particularly grabbed my attention this week. It was a letter from a 41-year-old um, woman, a Jewish believer in Jesus, uh, who had breast cancer, which then spread to her lungs and liver. And uh, she confessed that sometimes she would pull away from God completely, but then to use her own words, and I quote, after sulking in silence for a period of days or weeks, I would come back to God slowly and reluctantly, a pout on my face, but recognising that I didn't know how to live apart from God. I found those words actually quite, quite profound. And in her letter, she continues this way. She says, what is the point of praying for something to happen? I can understand the point of praying as a means of simply trying to establish communion with God. But why should I pray for someone to be healed or for my husband to get a job or for my parents to come to salvation? I pray for others because I often feel helpless to do anything else and I cling to the hope that maybe, just maybe, this time it will matter. My spiritual leaders are always admonishing our congregation to spend hours in prayer, interceding for those in need. Why? If God has plans and knows what we want and need and what's best for us, should I spend hours asking him to change his mind? And how do I pray with faith when it seems that the kind of prayer that I am lifting up rarely gets answered? She then went on to tell of hundreds of people who were praying for her, praying for her healing from cancer and questioned whether their prayers mattered at all. And she asked the question, am I more likely to get healed than my friend who also has cancer but has only a handful of people regularly praying for her? Now, to be honest, in reading that this week, I just found those words utterly transparent and honest and uh, real and devoid of any kind of pretense and religiosity. And what I read in that letter is what I call the, the paradox of prayer. Guys, we're having trouble with this again. Just move it on for me, please. No, no, back one. Thank you. Many skeptics question the prayer's usefulness. Uh, if you want to type the words paradox of prayer, first, first slide, please. Thank you. Uh, into Google, and I've done that this week, Paradox of Prayer, try it. The first 12 videos that came up were, surprisingly, not from Christians. They were actually from atheists who were quite desperate to undermine the rid uh, and ridicule this very idea of prayer. And most of them make the same points. And the points are, if God knows what is best for the governance of the universe, then our attempts at changing his mind through prayer are useless or detrimental. Another point that's made is if God is good, 
then he's going to do the right thing anyway, whether we pray or not. Another point, if God knows what I need before I ask him, as Jesus said, then why ask? Yet another point, if God is omniscient, and that means that God knows everything, then why do we need to inform him what's going on? Another paradox is why does God only rarely step into the world events in response to our prayers? God might have, as we heard last week, prevented the annihilation of a third of a million soldiers uh, at Dunkirk, the miracle of Dunkirk that we spoke about last week, which is a, a wonderful story, an amazing deliverance. But why did God then allow the atomic bombs to fall on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, killing a quarter of a million civilians? Half of them on the first day when the, day, when the bombs were dropped, and the rest, over a period of months, uh, they suffered from burns and the effects of radiation. Or perhaps allow the, the bombing of London, where 32,000 civilians were killed and another 87,000 were seriously injured. And being we talk about London, what about Dresden or Hamburg or Tokyo? Why did God allow over 6 million Jews to be murdered in gas chambers of Auschwitz and other concentration camps? And when we are talking about these things, another paradox perhaps, why are some people miraculously healed and others are not? Others die. One atheist uh, philosophy professor put it this way, if God can influence the course of events, then a God who is willing to cure colds and provide parking spaces, but is not willing to prevent Auschwitz and Hiroshima is morally repugnant. Ouch. Ouch. But I can understand that kind of reasoning. So what we want to do this morning is ask the $64 million question and ask that question, which is, does prayer make any difference? And if so, do our prayers make a difference to us or do they make a difference to God? Now, we've uh, looked at this over the last couple of weeks and we've already said, haven't we, that our prayers most certainly make a difference to us. That often when we pray, we gain a new perspective on situations or issues or people. Sometimes we gain a new peace uh, in troubled times. And yet on other times when we pray, God allows us to become the answer to our own prayer. I think we all get that. But do our prayers also change God's mind on certain things. And if that is so, how does that work? Because the Bible teaches us that God is unchangeable. Yes, we've come to that slide <laughs> at long last. And the Bible says in Malachi 3.6, as you can see on the slide, that I, the Lord, do not change. In James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness or shadow of turning. In other words, what we are being told there, that God doesn't change, he's rock solid, he's dependable. Or Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? or a well-known verse in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. 
Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, personally, I think that the, uh, the subject of God's unchangeable nature is one of the great subjects, is one of the great themes of the entire Bible. That knowledge to know that God is constant, that he is consistent, that he is unchangeable, brings us comfort and security. We know where we are with him. We can count on him. His promises are true. God doesn't have an off day. He doesn't get mood swings. You know, we sing that great hymn, don't we? Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not, as thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness. And that truth fills our hearts with awe and wonder and assurance and a deep, deep love. But if that's true, that God is unchangeable, that he works everything according to the counsel of his own will, <coughs> some people have asked, how can our prayers, therefore, make any difference at all? How can we change the mind of a God who is unchangeable? Basically, if God has got a plan for this world, written in eternity, then what difference is my puny little prayer going to make? A third century leader by the name of Oregon spoke about this paradox of praying to a God who does not change. And he puts it like this. If everything happens according to God's will, and if what he wills is fixed, and if none of the things he wills can be changed, then prayer <coughs> is in vain. And there are many philosophers down through the ages have followed the same line of reasoning. For example, Immanuel Kant called it an absurd and presumptuous delusion to think that one's prayer might change God's plans. Now, I'm sure none of you are surprised this morning when I say that uh, I don't agree with that. And even more importantly, far, far, far more importantly, infinitely more importantly, Jesus doesn't agree with that kind of thinking either. The Bible, on the one hand, does teach that God is unchangeable, but it also presents a picture of a God who delights in his creation and responds to his creation. And what we find is that these two truths are intention. <coughs> There's a paradox here. And it isn't the only paradox that we find in the Bible either. Think of Christ, the God-man. Not 50% human, 50% divine, but 100% divine, 100% human. Think of the Trinity, one God. Yet three distinct, co-equal, co-eternal persons of the Trinity. Think of the Bible. Over 40 different human authors writing in a range of genres, history, letters, prophecy, law, poetry, biography, over a period of a thousand years or so. And yet, as Paul writes to Timothy, this is God-breathed. <coughs> so all of those examples of truths are held in tension. <coughs> and you could speak of them as paradoxes, paradox of Christ, of the Trinity, paradox of the Bible, but there's also this great paradox of prayer that we see. A great example of this is uh, found in Acts chapter 2. Uh, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he was preaching to the, the crowds in Jerusalem, 
And speaking of Jesus, <clears throat> he said, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death, uh, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. Now, I'm sure that we would all agree that the cross was foreordained by God. Yes? And yet, we read of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, Let this cup pass from me. Speaking of the crucifixion, I've got a question for you. Could Jesus have changed his father's mind about the need for the cross? The answer to that is no. God is not a man that he changes his mind. And yet, Jesus nevertheless found it necessary and helpful to pray. And through his prayer, he aligned himself to his father's will. Not my will, but your will be done. So what are we to make of all of this, this, this great paradox of prayer? Well, first thing I'd say to you, don't worry about the theological conundrums of how prayer works or uh, having a need to answer all your questions. Prayer is God's great idea. It's God's great gift to us, hence the, the title of this series. We don't need to understand the inner workings of how prayer works any more than we need to understand the inner workings of a car's engine in order to be able to drive. We don't need to understand the four forces that work together to cause a, an aeroplane to lift up from the ground to enjoy a holiday abroad. And we don't need to understand the mechanics of prayer in order to enjoy a relationship with Father God. And I would say that there are mysteries in this life, there are mysteries of our faith. Uh, 20 years ago, I was far less happy with this. I wanted to nail everything down. I wanted to understand absolutely everything. But I am so much happier these days living in this sense of tension with a sense of the transcendence of God and a sense of mystery. <coughs> you see, we will get to know all of this, but it's not now. It's going to be in heaven, I believe. And uh, one day we will know as we are known. His ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. And the way that I think of prayer is a little bit in the same way I think of evangelism. <clears throat> I know that uh, many of you here this morning have come to faith in Jesus, that your lives have been transformed by the witness of many people in this church, or the church, what it does in the community and so forth. <clears throat> people, because they loved you, because they are obedient to the calling of Christ, they have shared that message with you. But if you've ever thought of this, a sovereign God could well have saved you without any of us. Yes? He didn't need us. He could have met you directly in a dream, sent an angel, given you a vision like Paul had. He didn't need to choose to work in partnership with us. But he has commissioned us, his people, his church, to take his message out into the world. And in a very similar way, I would say to the partnership in evangelism, God chooses prayer as a means of bringing about his will on earth. Now I find that verse in uh, James chapter 4 verse 2 incredibly challenging. It says you do not have because you do not ask God. 
You do not have because you do not ask God. And just catch this. There are some things God will do if we ask him that he will not do if we do not ask him. It's one of the most important things I'm going to say this morning. There are some things God will do if we ask him that he will not do if we do not ask him. I'm not saying that God will give us everything we ask, but there are some things. And God has chosen this means of prayer to get his will done on earth. And I just wonder sometimes, some of the things that we might have missed out on or are missing out on, maybe some spiritual or material blessings which have been sanctioned from the throne room of heaven with our names written on it, but we didn't ask. And I can just imagine uh, Jesus turning to Father and saying, why don't they just ask us? Why do they persist in just carrying on trying to achieve our purposes in their own strength? So why pray? I think the more simple answer to that question is because Jesus did. Because Jesus did. You see, the Gospels provide us with more than a, a dozen specific examples of Jesus praying, along with several parables on prayer. On five occasions, we read of Jesus praying alone. We read of his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, which pushed, pushed him to the edge of endurance. Three times he fell to the ground. Three of the seven cries from the cross were prayers by Jesus to his father. Jesus prayed for children brought to him by mothers. He prayed at Lazarus's graveside. He prayed for Peter in that time of testing. He prayed for his persecutors when he was on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Jesus relied on prayer as a kind of spiritual recharging. After an exhausting day of ministry, of recruiting disciples, of healing the sick, of debating with religious leaders, he would withdraw to an isolated place and pray. <coughs> Jesus' prayers intensified around key events, his baptism, the choosing of the 12 disciples, the dodgy dozen, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then we have that one magnificent prayer which is recorded for us in John chapter 17, where Jesus even prayed for us, for us today. Wow. For those who would come to believe in him through the message of his disciples. So why pray? The answer is because the one who spoke worlds into being and sustains everything that exists felt compelled to pray. That's why. Another reason would be that uh, Jesus actually taught his disciples to pray. In Matthew chapter 6 verse 5, what is often called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said to his disciples, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and the street corners to be seen by men. Notice there what he says and what he doesn't say. He says, when you pray, not if you pray. And then he gives them an instruction on how to do it. And Jesus taught his disciples to pray to their father who is unseen. And in that teaching in Matthew chapter 6, wonderful teaching, he then says that they didn't need to keep on babbling away because God isn't impressed by their many words. And then he says, 
For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. In other words, he's got it covered. I was saying to you just a few moments ago that um, some of my um, um, preparation and thinking recently is um, through reading Philip Yancey's book, Prayer, Can It Make a Difference? Excellent book, I do recommend it to you. And I just want to quote what uh, Yancey says. It's a good quote, this. Some see God's omniscience, that is, again, God knows everything, as a disincentive to prayer. Why pray if God already knows? In contrast, Jesus treated God's knowledge not as a deterrent, but as a positive motivation to pray. We do not have to work to gain God's attention through long words and ostentatious displays. We do not have to convince God of our sincerity or our needs. We already have the Father's ear. Wow, isn't that great? God knows everything about us and still listens. You see, God knows everything about us and still listens. He knows everything. Everything we need before we ask him. And yet Jesus still encourages us to pray. Paul similarly writes to the church at Philippi with those great words. Do not be anxious about everything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God knows everything, and yet we are still encouraged to present our requests to him. The result, it will affect us. We will know God's peace, even in the storm. So why pray? Because Jesus did. Because Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And God just loves to be asked. God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need our wisdom. doesn't need our knowledge. He doesn't need information contained in our prayers. As Jesus told us, your Father knows what you need before you ask him. But God loves to be asked. And he invites us into a relationship. You know, <clears throat> you know we hear this sort of stuff a lot. You know, if you've been a Christian a long time, you, you, you know all of this stuff. It's become very familiar to us. But just stop there for a moment and think about these words. That the God who created everything, the God who created and sustains the universe, wants to enter into a relationship with us. What a crazy thought. That's absolutely bonkers. He wants us to do life together. Wow. It's amazing. I love that story. That story of uh, Peter, James and John. They've been with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, having a rendezvous with uh, Elijah and Moses. And they came down from the mountain into the valley, from that spiritual high point into a valley and I suppose there's a sermon in that and they saw the crowd and the crowd were gathered there and the teachers of the law were arguing with each other uh, arguing rather with the disciples and Jesus came up and asked them what are they arguing about and then a story emerged a man from the crowd uh, a father of a young lad explained that his son was possessed by a 
evil spirit and the spirit had robbed him of speech and uh, that this same spirit kept throwing him into, com uh, into com uh, convulsive fits. He was foaming at the mouth and gnashing his teeth. And uh, then he informed Jesus that he had brought his son to the disciples and they couldn't do anything for him. That they didn't ha have the power, it seems, to drive out this spirit. The boy was brought to Jesus and immediately started convulsing. And the father came up to Jesus and said, if you can do anything, take pity on us. Help him. And when I read those words again this week, I just detected that deep sense of hopelessness. This man has tried everything. And he's not really going to build his hope on Jesus because he's probably too fatigued. He's been and looked at everything that he can do in order to get his son put right. Everything that he had hoped for his son had been taken away by this condition. And then Jesus repeats his words back to him as if to emphasize this man's uh, hopelessness. And he says, if you can, if you can. And Jesus said, everything is possible for him who believes. And the boy's father was really honest. I just love his response. He says, I do believe. Help me over, uh, overcome my unbelief. How I love that guy's transparency. He wasn't being over super spiritual. He wasn't trying to make himself out more than he was. But he was living in this tension of faith and doubt, belief and despair, hope and hopelessness. And if we're honest, for most of us here, that's the kind of tension that we live our lives in. A tension of hope and hopelessness, faith and doubt. And Jesus rebuked this evil spirit and said, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And the spirit shrieked and the boy was violently convulsed and looked so much like a corpse that some of them thought that he was dead. And later, away from the crowd, his disciples asked Jesus, Why was it that you could drive out this demon and we couldn't? It's a good question. Because Jesus just before that, had given them authority to do this. And they went round the villages and the towns doing that and driving out demons. But Jesus replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. I just found that an amazing answer. And I know we've got to probably read between the lines a little bit with this, but I can only assume that in, in the doing of ministry they had not spent sufficient time alone with Father God, that they had not taken that time to replenish their spirits. They'd, ex they'd previously experienced great things when Jesus sent them out two by two into the villages and towns. But now it seems as if they were attempting to serve God in their own strength, which is a never, ever a good place to be. And can I say to you this morning, if you were uh, involved in some ministry, in serving God in some way, maybe it's good to ask that question from time to time. Am I serving in my own strength? Or am I serving in the power of the Spirit? Because, you know, many people in this church, we have such a talented, talented group of people. We have 
great human resources, if you could put it that way, in this church are people who are hugely talented. But sometimes our abilities can actually get in the way. Very, very important. Jesus said something similar on another occasion in John 15. Jesus said, remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do lots and lots and lots. You can occasionally do some stuff. No. You can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's our lesson as well, isn't it? It really is. Prayer is our relationship with God. It's a partnership. And I guess that the closer that we are in that relationship, the more that we will understand Father's heart and his will. That's not only Jesus and Paul, but also James, the half-brother of Jesus. He writes about this. He was the leader of the Jerusalem church, uh, one of the big guns of the church in the first century. And he encouraged believers to pray as well in all circumstances. This is what he writes in James chapter 5. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. We're not really sure about this practice and where it came from, but James speaks about it and uh, I suppose, you know, we'll just obey it and we'll give opportunity a little li later on. If any of you are sick, then uh, elders here, we've got, we've got oil here. We'll be glad and very happy and privileged to pray with you. He goes on, he says, Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you will be healed. And then he finishes off with this. He says, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. New Living Translation there. In other words, in other words, and this is really what I would encourage you about this morning. It works. Prayer might be a paradox but it also has wonderful power and produces wonderful results, to use James's words. Let me come into land. A great story that um, I came across some time ago, and actually I, I came across it again this week. It's a story um, of the power of prayer and uh, told by Tony Campolo, the sociologist and Christian leader. Now, uh, Tony Campolo tells of a time that he was invited to speak at a Pentecostal college. And before the service, eight men, probably part of the faculty of the college, asked Tony to kneel and they wanted to pray over him. And they placed their hands on his head and uh, Tony was very glad to have the prayer. And they prayed for quite a long time. And uh, one of the guys who was praying sort of went off-piste uh, in his prayer. And by that, I mean that he started by praying for Tony, but then his mind began to wander. This is the guy who was praying for him. And uh, he started praying about all other things, which uh, rather bemused uh, 
Tony Campolo. And he prayed, Dear Lord, uh, as he is actually praying for Tony now, Dear Lord, uh, you know Charlie Saltzfuss? He lives in that silver trailer a mile down the road. You know the trailer, Lord, just down the road, on, on the right-hand side. And Tony remembered thinking, do you really believe that you have to remind God where Charlie lives? <laughs> but this prayer went on. Lord, Charlie told me this morning that he was going to leave his wife and three kids. Step in and do something, God. Bring that family back together. The men finished their prayer. Tony shared his message. After the service was over, he excused himself and went on to the Pennsylvania Turnpike to return home. As he did this, he saw a hitchhiker on the side of the road. He felt compelled to pick him up. And here's what happened next. And I'll, I'll read it as, uh, as uh, Tony Campola tells it. We drove a few miles and I said, Hi, my name's Tony Campola. What's yours? He said, It's Charlie Saltzfuss. I couldn't believe it. I got off the turnpike at the next e exit and headed back. He got a bit uneasy with that and after a few minutes he said, Hey mister, where are you taking me? I said, I'm taking you home. He narrowed his eyes and asked, why? And I said, because you've left your wife and three kids, right? This blew him away. With shock written all over his face, he leaned himself against the car door and never took his eyes off me. Then I really did him in as I drove straight to his silver trailer. When I pulled up, <laughs> his eyes seemed to bulge as he asked, how did you know I lived here? I said, God told me. <laughs> I believe God did tell me. When he opened the trailer door and his wife exclaimed, you're back, you're back, Charlie whispered in her ear. And the more he talked, the bigger her eyes got. Then I said, the two of you sit down. I'm going to talk to you and the two of you are going to listen. Man, did they listen. That afternoon, I led those two young people to Jesus Christ. You see, when you pray, God, step in and do something, just be prepared for an answer. It might not be in the way that you expected, but be aware that he is a God who hears our prayers. You see, there are many aspects of prayer which remain a mystery to me. And to tell you the truth, that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this these few weeks on prayer, because I don't get it. And I just wanted the opportunity to read and do a little bit more research and try to get my heads around what's happening here when we pray. And I can't even begin to make... A, pr a precise role for prayer in, in something like a terrorist or tra attack or a path of a hurricane or the Syria conflict or homelessness or world hunger. But what I am doing, and I've got my L plates on, what I am doing is that I'm learning to go to God with all of my concerns as a little child would come to a loving father. I'm a work in progress. And I tell him of my utter dependence on him. And I make my requests known to him as I am encouraged to do so in the scriptures, fully aware that it's not me, but God who makes the final decision. And so often at those times, I come away with a, a new peace in my heart 
and a totally different perspective on life. Let's pray. Lord, despite, despite our, our lack of understanding, I pray, Lord, that we will lean on you more. As children dependent on a loving Father, trusting you, Lord, where we're not permitted to see, I pray, Lord, that we might grow in faith and trust and that we might realise, Lord, that apart from you, we can do absolutely nothing at all. Amen.